the great thing about these small spaces is not only can you just change the locks and tell them to go, but often since they're smaller tenants, we'll just say to them, Hey, you don't want to go to court. We don't want to go to court. Let's save you the legal fees because they don't want legal fees. Just go. You're listening to The Life & Money Show, a podcast that brings you the stories and strategies of people who are living a meaningful and intentional life by design, building true wealth for their families, and impacting the world around them. And now here are your hosts, Annie Dickerson and Julie Lamb. Hey, everyone. Annie Dickerson here together with the amazing Julie Lamb. And we happen to be recording this on Julie's birthday. Julie, how's your birthday going so far? It's going good. It's funny. You know, ever since I started having kids, I don't celebrate my birthday as much as like, or as big as I used to, right? You can only turn 29 so many times. That's exactly what it is. So it's like, I stopped counting like at least 10 (laughs) years ago, but yeah, it's not too bad. Not too bad. Can't complain. So what's new with you? Oh, well, we've been working behind the scenes to launch this new deal, this new hotel deal. That's been a big part of my world. And you know what? I came to this realization yesterday through a coaching call was that I was talking a lot about how, I don't know if you have this, but I have a lot of guilt with mom guilt when my kids come to me and especially in the afternoons after they're home from school. And they're like, hey, can we play a game? Can we do this? And I'm sitting at the kitchen table working on like the investment summary deck or all these things that we need to launch a new deal, right? And so I'd feel guilty. I'm like, oh my gosh, soon they're not even going to ask me anymore. And then I'm going to be so sad. I'll be like, I took all that time. But you know what I realized just yesterday and today was through choosing that work, it brings me a lot of fuel, a lot of passion, a lot of energy. And so what if it's work? That doesn't mean I have to feel guilty about it. It's my choice. It's almost like self-care in a way because I love it so much. And I'm so blessed and fortunate to have this work that I love so much. And through showing them that, how cool is that, right? To show them you can actually do something meaningful for the world and something that you love doing. And so it's not that I'm choosing that over them. It's that I'm choosing that and them so that we can create this better life. But anyway, that's my latest discovery. I love that. It's so funny. I feel like our lives often run in parallel and we don't even know it. You're like, (laughs) I'm living mine and we're just like living the same life. It's so funny. I have so much of that. And we talked about that today on the show. The mom guilt thing is real. And the conclusion that I came to lots of what you said too, but the conclusion that I came to and coach Trevor always talks about this too, is and Tony Robbins talks about this too, is the story that you tell yourself about the event that's happening, right? And so I realized that when in those moments of like feeling that guilt or feeling shame or whatever, a negative feeling that I'm feeling, all I have to do is like rewrite that narrative in my head, just like what you said, right? You're just rewriting the narrative in your head and putting a new lens and which you're looking at the situation from. And all of a sudden it doesn't go away completely, but it doesn't become as magnified as it did before you sort of change the lens, right? And so it's really interesting, but so much mom guilt happens for me too in homeschooling the kids. And I don't know, I haven't really built like a solid homeschooling community. And so there's lots of, am I teaching them the right things? Are they going to grow up to be a bum on the streets in San Francisco? You know, like... I don't know what's going to happen. And I'll pop up at like three in the morning thinking, picturing my three kids like hobbled together on a curb in SF, you know? (laughs) 
(laughs) But at least they'll be together. At least they'll be together. There you go. Changing that lens, right? There you go. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that segues nicely into our conversation today featuring Kim Hopkins. She's the CEO of Iron Peak Properties. And of course, on the show, we talk a lot about her story. She has a really interesting story where she started out with a passion for mathematics and then realized she wanted to have a bigger impact than just, she mentioned at one point, reading this old German book to try to discover a new math problem, right? But applying her skills to the world and helping people, which is what she and her husband do now through Iron Peak Properties. And we talk about the mom guilt thing. She has two kids and she started her business around the same time that we started ours when our kids were really little as well and just finding that balance. And so it's really interesting because whereas a lot of people get started in real estate investing with a single family home or a small multifamily, nope, she and her husband went big. They went with a 25 tenant or 25 unit industrial building. And so she talks about how they got into that. It's a really fascinating story. Yeah. It's so funny when she was talking about that, her old previous life, and I think she had the two job offers on the table and she described the startup or like this big fancy company in a big, nice office or whatever. And she had mentioned like the smell that she encountered (laughs) at the startup, which she ended up working with. That's a spoiler alert, but she ended up going with this small startup doing tax liens or something, right? Yeah. Tax credits. Tax credits. Yeah. And it was just really funny because through her description, I could almost smell the smell as she walked office that day. But yeah, no, it was uh, it's such an interesting story of her journey and then her discovery of wanting to have more impact in her life and in her days and getting to do what she does now. But the part that I loved so much about the show was to really dig into industrial. It's been a space that you and I both have been interested in over the last year or so as we've slid into this place in multifamily that it's kind of like, are the numbers really starting making sense anymore? And what's going on in the multifamily space? And as such, we've diversified away from multifamily over the last year through Good Egg too. And so it was fun just to get to pick her brain. What is industrial? What is the multi-tenant industrial mean? How is that different from triple nets? We talked about returns, sort of the due diligence that they do on the deals. And so it was a good one for an introduction into this multi-tenant commercial lease industrial release that we haven't had anyone on the show talk about. So it it was great. Yeah. And just to know that individuals can invest in industrial. You can invest as a syndication with a large group as well, but also that she and her husband are doing these deals, some of these deals on their own, which is really cool. Yeah. If anybody wants yeah. to buy a deal, she mentions that in the yeah, show. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so if anybody's right. interested in doing this after you listen to the show, reach out to her because she has some deal or deals in Portland. That's or- right trying to offload. So (laughs) there you go. More reason to listen through the whole show. But anyway, for any of our listeners, if you are new to the world of real estate investing and in particular real estate syndications and passive investing, and you want to learn more, there can be a lot of resources and it can be really overwhelming out there. So we've created a soup to nuts resource for you. It's our book called Investing for Good. We have a free hardcover copy for all of you. Just go to goodeginvestments.com slash book. All right. With that, let's dive into our conversation with Kim Hopkins. Kim, welcome to the show. How are you? 
I'm good, Annie. How are you doing? Thanks so much for having me. Of course, of course. Now, Kim, I remember when we first met at a conference earlier this year, right away, I was struck by your passion for what you do, as well as the unique niche that you play in, which we're going to talk about. Now, I know that Iron Peak Properties, you focus on multi-tenant industrial, and I don't know too much about that. So I'm really excited to dig in. And we're going to get into exactly what that means and why industrial can be such a great investment. But before that, Let's start by hearing a little bit more about your story. So start by sharing a little bit more about your background. What were you doing before you got into real estate and how did you come to discover and start investing in industrial assets? Well, definitely I will share that with you. But first, I just have to tell the audience how we met. So I don't know if you remember, but we were at a conference and you had given a wonderful presentation. But halfway through the presentation, I got a text from my babysitter back home that my son had drawn with an ink pen all over my couch. Right. So I introduced myself to you and said... I loved the first half of your presentation, but could you tell me the rest of it? Because I was so angry, I couldn't hear anything. So <laughs> that's right. I totally forgot. It. Did were you able to get it out ultimately? We were with a lot of okay. Google and some sweat equity, as they like to call. Oh my gosh, I, I remember like, that now. Yeah, I yeah. had the same thing happen to me, and I guess it's payback because I did the same thing to my uncle, uh, his house. Uh, I remember vividly, and for whatever reason, I was just thinking about this the other day. But that's so funny. It's the worst thing. You turn around and you look at this beautiful couch, and it has like. Like ink all over the place, but yes. yeah, oh. <laughs> just a real life moment. <laughs> Yeah. So how I got started, I never really had a passion uh, growing up. I bopped around. I knew I wanted to build something, but I didn't have anything specific. I I wasn't particularly artistically creative. I didn't know what I wanted to do. I went to college and I signed up for math classes because you only had to show up for the test. And it turned out I was pretty good at math. So I ended up helping the other kids on my floor in the dorm. Just kept going with that. And I actually got talked into going to grad school for mathematics. So So I went to the University of Texas at Austin with a full scholarship for math. And I continued down that path of a six-year graduate program, got my PhD. You must have been really good at math, full scholarship for math. Good for you. I liked, it's funny because if my school had had a business program, I honestly Mm. would have loved to do that. Something like entrepreneurship or real estate. Geez, if you could connect the dots looking backwards, I would have loved to get a degree in real estate, but there was no other field I could find where you could actually create something and produce something original. I shouldn't say that. There are other fields where you could do that, but this is the one I saw where you could create and produce original work. And so that's how I ended up in it. And it was great until it wasn't. I kept going down that path. I was very encouraged from everyone to keep in the ivory tower and continue on the academia route. And I got a National Science Foundation scholarship to UCLA for postdoctoral fellowship, which is basically the path you take to become a professor for those who mm. have so luckily you were all not in academia. You were going to go down. Yeah. All in, all All in. My husband and I moved out to Los Angeles in 2010 or something like that. And as soon as I got there and started that program as a professor at UCLA in mathematics, I knew instantly that I was done. I hated it. The last straw was I got invited to give a talk at UC Berkeley and half the audience was like 80 years old and falling asleep. (laughs) (laughs) And half the audience looked very bored and then diagrams overlapped. So it's just... 
And I just thought, I don't want to do this anymore. Why am I here? Why am I doing this? I want to work on something interesting that has an impact to people. I remember my advisor told me, here's this book in German that's 200 years old. Why don't you read this and try to find an unsolved problem? And you just say to yourself, why? Why would I want to do that? So it was a very hard, it was a very low moment of my life, but that's how we grow. That's how we learn. I had no idea what I wanted to do. Not only that, but I also had a really hard time finding a job because I was overeducated and underqualified. I had no job experience. I had been a math professor and I had taught in graduate school and in college, but I had no other real job experience. I remember the lowest point at some point, I took my PhD off my resume because people were just like, why are you applying to these jobs? I was applying to entry-level positions at banks and just all over the place. Finally, I found an ad for a job on Craigslist for a startup in tax credits. And I thought, gosh, how could you get anything more boring than tax credit? I mean, than math. And the answer is tax credits. But I applied anyways. And around the same time, I actually got finally an interview with a management consulting firm. So I had these two interviews at the same time. And one was a start, was the startup company and tax credits. It was in downtown Los Angeles. It smelled bad in the office and walking there. And <laughs> there were three dudes with lots of takeout food sitting around. And <laughs> the other was- A true this- hero's journey story. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> the management consulting firm was this high rise in Century City, very fancy. So the tax credit company, they were clearly a startup and they were offering a third of what the consulting company was offering me. But they said, your opportunity is only limited by your contribution. And I will never forget that. And the management consulting firm where I also got a job offer was three times more pay. But they said, well, you'll have to do this particular job, whatever it was, senior associate, for three years. That's what everyone does. And after the three years, then we'll reevaluate and see if you can do the next job. And Mm, I just thought... They had a very neat box for you. They had a very (laughs) neat box. And I just have never done well with rules or things like that. And so I chose the startup. And one of the people I worked with at the startup actually didn't want to hire me because I had never done Excel before. And it was a heavy analyst type job. But ironically, I ended up replacing myself with Excel. I wrote some programs in VBA, Visual Basic, using YouTube videos and wrote some programs to get us a bunch of Fortune 500 clients and then ended up managing half the company and then went into sales. And around 2014, I was just climbing this corporate ladder and really proud of myself, but really overworked. I remember yeah. like, how big were you still with the startup at that point? And I was had it still grown? with the startup and they had grown from about 20 employees to 130. And they had acquired wow. some companies. So they were getting bigger, but the expectation was you answer the phone. Like it was really mm. strange to take your birthday off, to go take the holidays off, things like that. So I remember like being sick and answering the phone after I had taken NyQuil and <laughs> all the things, yeah. all the things of the corporate lifestyle, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so in 2014, I happened to read Rich Dad, Poor Dad. <laughs> It's true. It's cliche now, but it's so true. And I looked Did at my Did somebody husband. give you the book? Did you stumble upon it? Have you ever heard of Loveline? Do you guys remember that show with Adam Carolla yeah. and Dr. Drew? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I love Adam Carolla and I was listening to his podcast all the time. And he actually had Robert Kiyosaki on, I think. Oh. I think he had Robert Kiyosaki on. And I, I heard it. I was like, who is this guy? And so that's how I found it. Yeah. Oh, very cool. Yeah. I never heard that connection between Loveline and Rich Dad, Poor Dad. 
Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. Anyway, so I read that book. I had my husband read it and we just looked at each other. And this was the answer to what we've been searching for because it's sometimes so unhelpful when people say to look for your passion because not all of us have a passion in a thing. I more have a passion in my system, in the way I like to work, in the way I like to think. I like to build something. I like to analyze. I like to negotiate. I like this varied day. And I don't know how to make t-shirts. I don't have a passion in something concrete like that. And so this combination of being able to build a, a business that's not cupcakes, that's not centered around an actual product combined with the lifestyle design was just exactly what we were looking for. So we wrote a five-year plan that was pretty heavy numbers based. And the five-year plan alternated properties and babies. (laughs) It was 2014. So we hadn't had any kids yet. And so our plan was to buy a property and then next year have a kid and then next year buy a property and so on. Only two kids. The properties are easy. All your couches were clean and untouched at that point. (laughs) Yes. None of the (laughs) industrial buildings draw on my couch or refuse to put on their socks. (laughs) I'm curious, did it actually happen that way though? Like buy a property, have a kid, but did it actually pan out like that or no? It actually a hundred percent did. Oh my God. That's (laughs) so awesome. That's great. Yeah. With women and babies and bodies. So that's awesome that it fit like that because it doesn't always work out that way. Yes, I know. I know we're lucky. I mean, in retrospect, maybe it would have been nice to have more kids, but the properties properties keep me company too. (laughs) Yes. There you go. So tell us you had some babies or which came first, baby or the property? Property. So we bought a property shortly after, I think in 2014, maybe the start of 2015, we actually visited our next property, did due diligence in Salt Lake City. And I didn't know I was pregnant, but we had a baby first and then got that property or I don't know, maybe it was vice versa. Maybe they were slightly out of order, but Uh yeah. (laughs) And was the first property that you bought industrial or was it Single family home, multifamily, what was it? Yeah, so we knew that we were interested in multifamily and we had been, have you ever heard the phrase dinks? No. Mm -mm. Dual income, no kids. We have been dual income, no kids for many years. We got married young. We've been married for like 12 years before we had kids. So we did have some savings. So we knew we wanted to do something bigger than a single family. And we looked at multifamily, but it didn't get us as excited. We didn't want to fix toilets in the middle of the night. Neither of us has any eye for design or anything like that. And what we really wanted to do is we wanted to be involved with businesses and we wanted to help small businesses. And so what we specialize in is multi-tenant industrial. The way to think about this is an industrial building meets an apartment complex. (laughs) So, but they're not allowed to live there. Just to be clear to all my tenants (laughs) listening, (laughs) that's happened a couple of times, but it is a big warehouse that's been chopped up into multiple suites, just divided literally. And everyone gets mostly warehouse with an overhead door. Then they get a very small office and a bathroom. It's simple, it's plain, and it's super versatile. So we started with that. The first property we looked at had maybe seven tenants And that was the one I wanted to do, but there was something funny about it. Too much hair on it, as we like to say. And then the next property that came around, it was in Vancouver, Washington, and it had like 25 tenants. And I thought, oh my goodness, we can't do this. We can't get a property with 25 tenants for our first deal, but talked ourselves into it. In retrospect, it was a really good thing to do because the property was actually only 75% occupied when we found it. 
we had just lucked out with timing, honestly, because it was 2014. So things were just getting better and better and better. But people who had been in the business through 2008 were still kind of licking their wounds. And so the property was still a little under leased. And we talked to the property manager in due diligence. He was this older guy who's probably 70 years old. And he was basically like, stay out of my way. And we asked him, are you going to be able to lease this thing up? Because we can't buy a property that's 70% leased. And he said, yep. And sure enough, by the time we closed, we had maybe like two vacancies. But that's one of the beautiful things of these smaller tenants is that if a couple of them are vacant, first of all, it leases faster than a larger tenant. And second of all, it's such a small portion of your total property that you don't notice the vacancy, which I'm sure everyone in multifamily is like, of course, duh, this is the great thing about multifamily too. So that's the similarity with multifamily. But the difference with multifamily, there's no stuff in the unit. There's no fridge. There's no washing machine. There's no fancy flooring. There's nothing. So it's a very easy turnover. There's very limited TI as well. So how did you, in the very beginning, I know a lot of people explain that they go through a process when they discover sort of real estate investing and all of this, and they go through a process of like, oh, maybe I'll do notes, or maybe I'm going to look at short-term rentals, or maybe I'm going to do a single family home or multifamily. Tell me about that process that you went through to discover this multi-tenant industrial leasing. How did you get to that? Like, did you talk to somebody at a meetup? Like, how did you even discover it as a niche? And then where are these properties? Are Were they in your backyard or did you have to travel? So that was from my family. They were basically passive investors and they had investment in a multi-tenant industrial property. And so that was kind of one of the first things we were looking at single tenant and everything. And I think my dad said to me, no, no, look at this kind of property or rather they introduced us to one of their brokers. And so we had that connection. And then when the broker tried to give us triple net single tenant properties to look at, we said, well, what if they're vacant? We were very risk adverse. And what if they're vacant? I mean, if a single tenant property is vacant and you have a mortgage, chances are you're going to lose money. Unless you have incredibly low leverage, chances are you're now cash flow negative. And so that's kind of, I think, what turned us onto it. I don't even know if short-term rentals were were short-term rentals a thing in 2014? I'm not even sure. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah it was the diversified tenant base combined with our desire to work with businesses instead of residential. And was this, were these in your backyard, the one that you found? Yeah. So we were in California at the time, in Los Angeles. My family's from Portland. I'm from Portland, Oregon. Okay. And the broker that was introduced to us was in Vancouver, Washington. So that oh. was just across the river from Portland. So mm-hmm. that's where we started in Vancouver, Washington. And then we just moved where the deals made sense. So we would get more deals after that in Vancouver. And we're like, what? These numbers don't make sense anymore. We're not going to cash flow. <laughs> and we didn't know, but we had no tolerance for that. And so then we looked up, where are their jobs? Where are people moving to? And we found Salt Lake City. Then we started looking in Salt Lake City, Utah. And to be honest, we've had a couple off markets, but mostly we've looked on LoopNet and just broker deals. And so that one we found on LoopNet in Mm -hmm. Salt Lake City, Utah, and we didn't know any better. So we had the broker from Vancouver represent us Mm -hmm. and we put an offer together and the selling broker said, no way, next. And we just got rejected. So then I talked to someone in LA and he said, no, 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 you need a local broker to represent you. 
So we found a local broker and he had like gone to high school with the guy selling the Salt Lake City deal. And we all got on a phone call and we found out what was important to the sellers. They just wanted it to be simple and easy and quick. So we wrapped that into our offer and submitted another one. And that's how we got our second property. We'll get back to our conversation with Kim in just a minute. Have you been thinking about investing in real estate, but aren't sure you have the time or the desire to manage the investment? Perhaps you're afraid like we were that you'll make the mistake of choosing the wrong market or the wrong team and lose your entire investment. Well, that's exactly why we created the Good Egg Investor Club. We do the work of identifying solid real estate investment opportunities in the best markets around the country and then partner with you to acquire these investments and then we'll all share in the returns. We'll identify the growing markets, strong, experienced teams, and the solid deals. We do all the heavy lifting of managing the tenants and the renovations, and as a passive partner, you get to enjoy all the benefits of investing in real estate, monthly cash flow, long-term appreciation, and the ongoing tax benefits. When we first discovered passive investing through real estate syndications, we realized it fit perfectly into our busy lives. We could put our money to work for our families, work less, and get more time back in our days so that we could focus on what matters most and discover our true passion and purpose in life. We've now helped hundreds of people invest passively in real estate syndications and are seeing the positive impact it's had on their lives. We invite you to partner with us by joining the Good Egg Investor Club today so you can start putting your money to work for you and get more time back in your day because we know that when people have more time in their days, they can do the true work they were intended to do and the world will be a better place. To sign up for the Good Egg Investor Club, go to goodegginvestments.com slash invest and we'll take it from there. That's goodegginvestments.com slash invest. And now back to our chat with Kim Hopkins. Nice. Nice. That's awesome. Yeah. Industrial has been something that I've been wanting to focus on for us at Good Egg too. And personally as well, I think it's prime time right now for industrial properties. What type of tenants do you look for when you're looking at the properties from an acquisition standpoint? What does that look like? Are you looking for, I'm assuming you said it's like a warehouse with like a roll-up. So it's like an Amazon, like not that size, but they're like smaller businesses that are running companies that need have a need for storage or is there manufacturing that happens there? What does that look like? So first I'll tell you what kind of tenants are typically in the space. And then I'll tell you what we try to avoid. Okay. <laughs> so the tenants that are typically in the space are going to be your contractors, all types of contractors, concrete cutters, sign makers, boat repair, things like cleaning companies, lots of cleaning companies. And then the beauty about this kind of product is if you pick the right kind of property that has some street frontage and is close to rooftops, close to houses, then you'll get this great retail crossover. So these people, let's say a driving school or a CrossFit gym, they're looking for a retail space. They're looking at retail rates. And then they come by to you and you say, I'm going to increase my price. And they say, wow, that's a cheap price. And you say, great. So we get this retail crossover tenant as well. So it's a very versatile product type. The types of tenants we try to avoid is not too much auto. They can be a little dirty. <laughs> 
And we also don't do anything with marijuana because we do use leverage and federally they could technically come take your building. So like I said, we're very risk averse. (laughs) Interesting. Okay. Now, when you look at acquiring these, the industrial assets, are you looking, doing, what kind of due diligence do you do on the businesses themselves? Are you doing any kind of research on like their historical P&Ls, understanding like the strength of their ability to be able to pay the rent? And is it like a triple net lease or what does that look like? Yeah. So we do research all of the tenants. We probably, unless it's a tenant that's like 4,000 square feet or bigger, we won't go into their business financials. We'll certainly look at their track record for paying rent. But those smaller tenants, that's one of the beauties of it is that they might have just as much trouble or rather a 10,000 square foot tenant might have just as much trouble paying rent as a 2,000 square foot tenant. But the ease with which you can get rid of a 2,000 square foot tenant is so much easier than a 10,000 square foot tenant. And my rule of thumb for leasing these properties is it takes about a month to lease per thousand square feet. So a thousand square foot unit might take you less than 30 days to fill and a 5,000 square foot unit could take you five months. So with these smaller tenants, you don't have to worry nearly as much as about their strength because the product type is so in demand. And I'm sorry, I completely forgot your second question, but I do want to answer. (laughs) No worries. Yeah. It's always interesting to think about the due diligence that's required on the businesses. And is it I'm curious, is it public information if a business doesn't sort of like credit checks for residential, if you don't pay your rent, does that end up, I mean, I guess if you got like small claims court, then I guess, or something like that, then it would end up on their record. But how do you know whether they've, do you just take their word for it? Do you do a background check? Like how do you find out whether they've paid their rent or not in the past? Whether they've paid their rent, we get that information from the seller's records, but Let me give you an example. So a property we bought in 2019, one of the tenants, their lease had been miswritten. There was literally a typo and the typo had a much lower rent. It wasn't as bad as a zero missing, but it was close. And there were like emails supporting the correct number, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And the tenant was paying the typoed lower rent and the landlord couldn't get them to pay the correct rent. So we went to the tenant and talked to him and He was mad. I can barely remember what he was mad about, but he was mad about something. The landlord had done something to make him mad. And the landlord was actually suing him at the moment for this increased rent amount. So we went to the landlord and we said, we'd like you to sign this agreement that you will not pursue this back rent if we close on the deal. And the landlord agreed. So then we went to the tenant and we said, we will get the landlord to agree to drop the pursuit of the back rent if you agree to pay us the correct rent when we close. And we got an agreement with him that said, if we close, you're going to pay the correct rent. So it's more one-off things like that. It's more getting to know their story because these smaller tenants, they could have a perfect record and then something happens and something changes. No one wants to buy squeezy pets anymore. And that's it. They're done. And so it's just more of these one-off getting to know them. And then I actually remembered your second question about triple nets. So the triple nets really vary from property to property. So the same property, actually, it was being sold to us by one of the largest syndicators in Australia. And so he was trying to package it up to be as appealing to an investor as possible. So he had taken these tenants, which were great tenants. They'd been in the property for like 12 years, which is a long time for these smaller guys. And he was converting all of their rents to triple nets. 
So at the end of the year, just to kind of refresh how triple nets work, you calculate the amount of expenses. And if there's more expenses for the property than what the tenants paid throughout the year, they now owe a bill for the difference. This does not go well with small mom and pop tenants. (laughs) They do not like to get a bill at the end of the year. They want to know just what they owe. So we went around the property and talked to all the tenants during due diligence and found out they were all really angry. And then we found out they were all angry about the same thing. They didn't like the triple nets. So we like to hold our properties for the most part. And so we went in and as soon as we closed, we changed them all back to gross and they are paying the same amount of rent. Again, it's just a math problem. As long as you're careful with your expenses and your rent amounts and you don't let property tax get out of control, you just take the triple net rent, add in the expenses and that's your new gross rent. So they were paying the exact same amount they were paying before, but now they're happy. So, and then some properties pay triple net without issue. So it just varies. What's the default rate look like on the properties that you guys buy in terms of the rent? Is there a percentage that you can peg down that you sort of underwrite into your assumptions when you're acquiring new properties? Not really. It really varies. Tenants do default. Tenants do have trouble paying rent. We do spend some time going through the game of here's your default notice. We're really going to kick you out this time. Like seriously. (laughs) And then they pay rent. (laughs) And then five months later, we're really going to kick you out this time. Then they pay rent. So there's a little bit of that. It's not common. It's Mm -hmm. probably 10% or less than the property. And we actually very rarely lose rent. They might default, but we usually get it back because the great thing about these small spaces is not only can you just change the locks and tell them to go, but often since they're smaller tenants, we'll just say to them, hey, you don't want to go to court. We don't want to go to court. Let's save you the legal fees because they don't want legal fees. Just go. And they just go. And so maybe we lose one month of rent, but we have the security deposit. So we take that. So we rarely actually lose rent, even though some tenants do end up defaulting. And so it sounds like it's much easier to evict or get rid of these tenants than it is for in like multifamily or single family. So when someone doesn't pay their rent, there's a whole process of like eviction. Like it sounds like in this case, they don't pay their rent. You can literally change the lock the same day and just not allow them back in. Is that right? Or what does that look like? Yes, pretty much. It varies by state. I would like to get out of Portland, Oregon. For example, I say to my lawyer, what? I can't do that. It's my property. So it does vary by state. And I do wish I could give myself credit for foreseeing COVID, but I did not. But boy, did I feel lucky because there were actually, there was a commercial moratorium in Portland, but it was only for a little while, but there otherwise there were not rent moratorium. So it is definitely easier in that regard. And it's also, you don't feel as bad because you're not putting someone out on the street. They just have to, a lot of these tenants move into these spaces out of their garage. So they just have to move back into their garage. Yeah. It makes sense. I have a question on returns. What can someone expect? Is it similar to multifamily deals? If an investor invests with you, what does that look like? Are they in the same like high teens IRR or what are you guys looking at? So right now, I mean, it's hard to find deals right now. There's a lot of irrational sellers that we're trying to have rational conversations with. (laughs) I'm sure they'll come around. But typically we shoot for like a 7% cap rate and 7 to 10% cash on cash. We're not super value add. We are doing a little more value add these days, but we're not super value add. Most of our improvements are operational 
Some of them are cosmetic, but honestly, the cosmetic, I'm always questionable how much that actually gets you in rent in industrial. Like, does this guy even notice that we put in new awnings? Does anyone care? So most of our improvements are operational. Like one of the biggest things is just from my life in sales in the corporate world, time kills deals. I yell that across the three feet between where me and my husband work every day. Time kills deals. So if you can just improve your operational response time to leasing requests and things like that, these guys look for a space when they were ready to move yesterday. So you need to have something ready for them to sign on your back. Here you go. You start tomorrow. So that's the kind of improvements we do. So yeah, about seven to 10% cash on cash is what we strive for. Yeah, this is interesting. It's really an asset management play than what you guys are doing. It's not even so much of, well, is it, I guess, rent increases as well? How are you driving the revenue? Is it just operational or is it rent increases? Is it a combination of both? What does that look like? It's definitely a combination of both. We definitely keep our pulse on the rents. We've seen a lot of situations where people have property managers in there that are very young and shiny and they make really shiny documents to go with their young and shiny selves and portfolios and all that junk. And we want the guy who's mid fifties, been in that neighborhood forever. The tenants sometimes think he owns the property. That's the guy we want managing the property. He lives down the street. He goes there all the time. And so we're very careful about local property management to the point where we will not waive due diligence until we have a signed agreement from the property manager that says, should we close, you will be our property manager. That's one thing I have to give a ton of credit to our property management teams. They're very good at keeping a pulse on the rents and then we work with them as well. And then we also do a lot of operational improvements on expenses and things like that. What does it cost for a property manager on a deal like this on these types of properties? Is it somewhere in the 10% less? More than it's that? about four to five percent. Some people charge six, but we won't pay six. It's mm-hmm. four to five. Okay. And where have you guys gone from the first 25 tenant property to today? Where are you at now in terms of how many properties have you acquired and what does that look like? We own about, not all of them are multi-tenant industrial. Some of them are some Airbnbs that I can't stand, but we own about 15 properties, about 400,000 square feet, 40 million assets under management. And they're currently located in Oregon. If anyone wants to buy some properties in Portland, please contact me. (laughs) I'm done. (laughs) Vancouver, Washington, Salt Lake City, Utah, and Dallas, Fort Worth. And then we have some Airbnbs in Arizona and Florida and California. Okay. And where is the next sort of area that you guys are focused on in terms of acquisitions? You mentioned earlier, you know, kind of moving around and following basically the money. Where are you guys going next? We would love to get another property in Dallas, Fort Worth. Yeah. I love Dallas. That market is like hyper local. Mm -hmm. So you have to be really careful in your selection of location. See a building itself that looks exactly like what you want. And then you drive out there and you drive out there and you drive out there. And an (laughs) hour and 20 minutes later, you're like, dang, this is in the sticks. Like no one, you have to be careful with that because the rising tide lifts all boats. And then I think Buffett said, and when the tide goes back out, we'll see who's skinny dipping. You don't want properties out in the middle of nowhere because that's not good for all seasons. But we're looking in Dallas, Fort Worth. We'd love to get something in Phoenix, but the Southern Californians are messing that up by paying too high of prices. So we're also looking a little bit on the Sun Belt. So 
where the deal makes sense. I always say there's no such thing as bad markets, only bad deals. Yeah, interesting. That's so many similarities to what we're seeing and what we're doing in the multifamily space as well. So I love that. And I guess last question before we move on to the last part of the show is you have a couple of kids. So we talked briefly about that. How old are your kids now? My kids are, I have a four-year-old boy named Ty and I have a six-year-old named Leah, both newly minted in August, four and six. So how many kids do you have? I have three, 10, nine, and seven, and it's so much fun right now. We're in, it's probably when I look back on the last 10, 11 years of parenting this age and the 10 and nine and in the seven, but the 10 and nine, so much fun. They're like little people and we can have real conversations that you really feel like, yeah, they understand a little bit more about the world around them. And so it's a lot of fun. I remember when we first started the business, my kids were about five and four and two at the time. And it was just, oh my gosh, it was yeah. the get off the floor, stop the tantruming, all of that kind of stuff. And so parenting has evolved for me as the kids have gotten a little older. So there's greener pastures ahead, but what has that been like? Like juggling kids and running the real estate business, a lot of fun. Has it been, do you feel like having the real estate business has allowed you the flexibility as a mom? What has that been like for you? Well, I'm going to turn this question on you afterwards, but I'll answer first. (laughs) I heard a rumor that you homeschool and I was just like, my jaw dropped. How does she do that? It has been, honestly, it's been challenging. It was almost easier when they were younger. We have really cute pictures of them in strollers at the properties and things like that. But it's like, it's not so cute when Ty is running around this gigantic saw in the middle of an industrial warehouse. So it's been very liberating that like mom can be home when they get home from school. And at the same time, it's been difficult because I see a lot of moms who are stay-at-home moms. And so they can do all the things, all the crafts, all the outings and everything. And I feel like since I have the capability to do that, technically, I don't have to buy another property if I don't want to. Since I have that capability, there's been a lot of guilt, self-imposed guilt. (laughs) Oh yeah. Oh yeah. It's hard having to choose between being just purely stay-at-home mom and then trying to be the business career woman too. And it's constantly like trying to straddle those two very big responsibilities. But yes, I think that the flexibility piece of it, it sounds like though, has been nice to be able to be home after school and do the drop-offs and things like that. So Yes. And just the travel. We take them with us a lot. We went to a conference in Belize earlier this year and took them along with us with the nanny. We don't have a nanny, but we just hired a nanny for this trip. So the flexibility in the travel is really great. And I'm hoping when they're older that they can be part of the business. That's our dream is to have them be involved. And we always say at the dinner table, the reason mommy's home right now and daddy's (laughs) home and we can go anywhere we want is because we own buildings. Mm -hmm. Try to instill that financial freedom concept early. <laughs> yeah. It's funny. I We say the same thing to our kids too at the dinner table. And I don't think that they'll ever truly like grasp and like really understand what they have until they get older. And they're taught sitting around. I imagine they're sitting around talking about it with their buddies and they're all their other friends are like talking about their parents going off to work every day. And they're like the oddballs where parents were home all the time and got to spend a lot of time with them. So 
Well, awesome. Well, it's been such a great conversation. I'm super excited to follow along. I hope you have some kind of a newsletter or something. I would love to sign up personally as well. So we'll talk about it offline, or maybe it's something you can share too at the end. But I'm a big believer in industrial. I think that where things are headed right now, I think with the multifamily space being so hot and short-term rentals, eh, I don't know, where is it going to go? Especially with recession sort of are we in it looming? I don't know. Are we coming out of it? Who knows? So I think industrial is definitely a place to be. I think when we talk about recession resiliency, I think industrial is a great spot. So lucky for you guys, you've been in it now for a number of years and it sounds like you guys know what you're doing. So exciting stuff for you. All right. Well, we're going to move into the last part of our show, the life and money show spotlight round, where we're going to ask you a couple of questions around life and money. So the first question is, what is one thing that you're doing right now to live a meaningful and an intentional life by design. Let's see here. So every year I do a year in review and a plan for the following year. It's gotten pretty thick. I try to keep it under 30 pages, but it's really a combination of our family and our business. So for the look back, I do a financial PL for our family, which looks just like a PL for our property, but it's our own income, expenses, and profits. And then I look at our calendar, I make a list of likes and dislikes for the look forward. We make a a budget for the properties, for our family. We also make a list of travel plans we want to go on. And then we also do a one-year plan and a 10-year plan. And they have goals in them of how we want to live our life intentionally by design. So it's constantly being updated, but that's definitely one of the main things I do each year. Okay. So can you like start a business and like offer that as a service? <laughs> I've thought about it. Because <laughs> I would totally sign up. Can you run my PLs for me? Because I'm tired of having to do it. <laughs> I've thought about it. Every time I do it too, I am like, why did I buy so much off of Amazon? Oh my gosh, this is so annoying. <laughs> but yes. yeah. <laughs> Yeah. You could have an offshoot, Iron Peak Families. Iron Peak Families, yes. There you go. I love it. I love it. All right. Well, second question is around others' life and money. So what is one life or money hack that you can share that will make an impact in others' lives right now? I'll give two. I'll give one that's more big picture and then one that's just a a tactical tool. So the first is, and I've heard you say something very similar before, but sorry, it's what I thought of, (laughs) to work backwards. And what do I mean by work backwards? I mean, start with your lifestyle design that what you want it to be. A lot of times, even in financial freedom land, even in real estate land, people build these huge syndications. They're going property after property. They want to go bigger. They want to go bigger. When someone tells me they want a 10X, my question to them is, why? And it's fine if you want a 10X, but why? What is your reason for wanting that more money? What is your reason for wanting that more property? And I really encourage people to start with a very granular forecast of what you want your life to look like. Because if we're constantly focused on the future, and if it's constantly this big picture thing, my future, I want to be free. I never want to work. Well, are you still doing laundry? Like, What does that look like on the day-to-day life? Because if we're looking for the future, we're trying to drag it into the present, we're never going to be present in our daily life. So I want to look at my day. What time do I wake up? What am I doing with my kids in the morning? How many hours am I working? Am I going to the gym? When? What am I cooking? Just the day-to-day. And then build your business into that. 
instead of just growing for the sake of growing. So that's my big picture hack. And then my small picture or tool, it would be Asana. Have you guys heard of Asana? I love Asana for project management. It's great. I have it set up as boards so I can keep everything organized on what I'm working on. You can assign tasks to your contractors and things like that. So that's my small tool. Nice. Yeah. I, we've heard of Asana. I don't know if we've looked at it. I think we might've, but I don't know, maybe it's worth another look, Annie, because <laughs> I know we've been searching for the right project management tool and I don't know that we've found it yet, but yeah, maybe Asana is one we need to look into. Yeah. I'd be happy to talk more with you about it. Awesome. Awesome. All right. Well, last question is around life and money in the world. So what is one thing that you're doing right now to make the world a better place? I'm trying to go deep right now. I've had some parental health problems for my parents this past year. And I've realized that it really matters who is in your tribe. And so I'm trying to build relationships with other people, particularly women, but other people in general who are just go-getters and also trying to build something and trying to live a life of purpose. And so I'm trying to help people that I meet and women in particular figure out what their lifestyle design looks like and help them work backwards into constructing that, whether it's passive investing, whether it's a short-term rental, whatever that looks like. I really enjoy helping people take the big picture and then help them with the numbers to back into how to actually get to that point. It's like that PL year in review thing. You're already doing it. That's amazing. <laughs> now I'm what trying to share the love. Yes. Yes. What an inspiration. It's so fascinating how you've taken your passion for mathematics from way back when, and it really carried it through as an undercurrent through everything that you do, really looking at not just the numbers, but problem solving and the systems and the operations and really optimizing everything. And you've brought that not just to real estate investing in these properties, but also the communities that you're building and your family and so much more. So Kim, you're such an inspiration. I know people are going to want to follow up with you and learn more. So tell them what's the best place that they can go. Sure. To learn more about what we do and get on our list for updates and opportunities, head to our website at ironpeakproperties.com and make sure to sign up for our blog and newsletters. And if you have a question or comment, you can send me an email directly at info at ironpeakproperties.com. Lastly, make sure to follow me on LinkedIn, which is under my name, Kim Hopkins, and follow me on Instagram, at money plus happy. That's money, P-L-U-S, happy. And I look forward to connecting with all of you. Perfect. Well, for all of our listeners, we'll have that link for you in the show notes. Kim Hopkins, CEO of Iron Peak Properties. Kim, thank you so much for being here with us, sharing more about the wonderful world of industrial and everything that you're up to. Thanks so much for having me. You've been listening to The Life and Money Show, the number one podcast for people who, like you, are living a meaningful and intentional life by design, building true wealth, and making an impact in the world. For more resources, check out goodegginvestments.com and be sure to join the Life and Money Show community on Facebook. And if you got value out of this show, please subscribe and give us a five-star review so we can continue to bring you amazing new conversations.